Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. When I listen to other podcasts, I often hear people saying, please give a top rating on iTunes. I'm not exactly sure why that is integral, but just let me say, please give me a top rating on iTunes. Thanks. In the previous episode, I had a great conversation with my friend Bianca Hermansen, Danish architect, urbanist, and thinker, about the subject of democratic design. This episode is another mind-blowing conversation with her. This time, we were in Paris, where Bianca was speaking on a panel discussion about gender and diversity in urbanism at the Danish cultural center Le Bicolore. In the panel, she covered a lot of the same topics as in the previous episode. Then we had an entire day to spend together. Bianca lives in London, and obviously because of the pandemic, we haven't seen each other as much as we'd like. So we just milked the opportunity to wander the streets, sit at cafes, have lunch, and talk. I get interviewed a lot in my work about my thoughts and theories about urbanism, as well as the work I've done all over the world. When I hang out with Bianca, all sense of time disappears as we ping-pong back and forth in a constant flow of knowledge exchange, personal conversation, and, of course, humor. What I like about podcasting with her is that I get to shut up. Well, ish, anyway and just let her release her stream of consciousness about issues that are critical to urbanism. And, as is the case in this episode, life as we know it in the midst of a climate emergency. This episode ended up being a bit different, perhaps even a bit weird. This is less an interview or a conversation between two urban thinkers. It's more two good friends talking the hell out of important issues. This is what it's like when Bianca and I hang out. We'll discuss the Mycelium Network in this episode, but you get to tap into the Bianca Michael Network. So sit down with us in the sunshine next to the river in the heart of Paris on the repurposed highway that is now an integral public space in the city with people walking, talking, cycling, skateboarding past and with all of the sounds of the city around us. It's going to be a wild ride into the important issue of urban greenery. So let's plug right in to Bianca's amazing brain. Hello, Bianca. Hello. Here we are again. I'm back. You're back. But we're not back because no. we're not in the rain in Copenhagen like in the previous episode of this podcast. We're in Paris. Yeah. Always good to be in Paris. On an old motorway, repurposed as public space along the River Seine. Yeah. Not bad at all. No. Sitting under some beautiful trees. Oh, and looking around, we're right next to Pont Neuf, and you know, we just look across the river. Huge, beautiful old trees. Yeah, um, centuries old. Centuries old. Individuals. Now, probably a disclaimer for the listeners of this podcast if you've ever made television or radio or podcasts in Paris, which I have done several times, it is the worst city in Europe to make audio in because we're gonna have it's like the city of sirens not the city of lights there's like noise there's boats going past so bear with us uh, as we we try to battle the audio environment here on the river but it's just authentic urban soundscape there you go that's kind of the idea with the podcast from the beginning me wanting to have the perfect sound and realizing this is an urbanism podcast so having the you know the ambiance yeah around us that that car honking right there yeah i I think that was always a kind of a i designed it this way some cities provide bigger challenges than than others but hey we could paris we're gonna nail you yeah yeah yes we are so when we left the last podcast in the rain under a tree in Copenhagen we said damn let's get something warm to drink yeah uh, and we're walking down the street and you have allergies and you started ranting <laughs> yes, I do. as you normally do and in the last podcast you were really like kind of calm and cool and talking about what you were talking about and you know not swearing like you normally do so this <laughs> right. this is my podcast we can fucking swear if you want to I can it, say fuck. I can say, fuck, say it. This is not an American network. Come on. No. Uh, this is Europe. And a Danish podcast. So yeah. even more freedom to do whatever the hell we want. Right. 
but when you started ranting about uh, your allergies, but also about pollen, yes, and you dropped a bomb in my head that I had never really heard about, and I was fascinated by, and I said, oh my God, we have to do this podcast, and yeah. we couldn't do it yeah. uh, in Copenhagen because you had to go back to yeah. London, and but anyway, we're here now, yes, and we got to do this because this is mind-blowingly interesting. Yeah. Okay. Tell me how the patriarchy <laughs> has influenced the green canopies in our cities. Right. Well, it, and it is an interesting story. So, just to start with the facts, roughly 30% of the world's population have allergies. They suffer from some type of airborne pollen allergy, right? So it's a lot of people, one third, right? And then you're thinking, well, okay, so then they move to the cities to get away from nature where the pollen is. Well, <laughs> fun fact, it sometimes is even worse in cities because of the patriarch, if we want to call it that. But It's um, a provocative way to start it, the podcast. No, it totally, right? but, totally but, is. But hey, we'll, we'll yeah, get to it. We'll, yeah. Okay. So sometime back in the 1800s, a group of white privileged men with property sat around a table, a mahogany table, with their... The high top hats, smoking cigars, and then they, they had decided, monocles on. I they bet probably too. have monocles on too, yeah, and cravats and whatnot. And they decided, you know what? Female trees—they're just way too messy. I wish I could say this with a British accent, but they're just way too messy and inappropriate to be part of the of the landscape of a pristine city of tomorrow, the future city. That's not what we want. It's way easier if we just go for male trees, and it's way more appropriate for a city of the future with male trees. And so ever since back then, because then there was a whole big body of work done around planting and maintenance and all these guides and principles for how to uh, do urban greenery. And we still use those principles today. So effectively, <laughs> we don't do female species in urban areas because that is messy. You have a few exceptions with like some flowering, you know, species where you really need the flowers for decorative purposes. But in general, we stick to the male species. We could effectively mediate or eradicate a lot of the symptoms of allergies if we were to switch to female species or just at least introduce some female species so it's not just all male. I mean the point is, and I'm gonna get a little graphic now <laughs> for the listeners, the point is airborne pollen from male trees, it's sperm. If we're walking around in the trees, sperm. That impacts some people, you know, and the only way to stop that from happening is to not have all sperm producing trees in the city or grasses or plants for that matter. It's any type of greenery. Now, again, we have to remember that the allergy industry is a huge industry. So there's also that, but. So the sperm now. <laughs> Yeah, you said let's get graphic, but basically for yeah. you with allergies, yeah. walking around in a green patriarchal uh, <laughs> city, <laughs> it's 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 just the the non-consensual cum shot, yes, right, all over your face all day long. I mean, <laughs> in a way, it, I know it's so silly, but that's literally what's going on. And I think you know what what bothers me is the fact that public health takes a backseat to historic documents around how to do a city, how to design the proper city, right? I think that's what, what sort of gets to me about this whole thing. Like, it would be so easy to fix. It's the easiest fix in the world, right? And there are other qualities to, let's imagine a world where we have female, more female trees and plants and uh, bushes and shrubbery and whatnot in the urban areas. What would that look like? Well, first of all, we'd have a lot more flowers in our cities. We'd have blossoming and flowering trees, for instance. We would have a lot of fruits berries, nuts, all that stuff. So you can imagine how rich our cities would be in terms of food sources for our animals and even wildlife in those parts of the world where our cities have wildlife as well, right? And just, you know, we were talking about this earlier, pollinators, right? So the world is facing massive pollinator extinction, right? It's a huge problem. And then you have all your well-meaning hipsters around the world <laughs> that are putting, you know, beehives up on their rooftop, right? I even have my, my neighbor in London, you know, my hipster neighbor in London in Shoreditch, he put up a beehive. And uh, those poor bees, they, you know, 
flock over to my rooftop because obviously I'm growing my own food. I have to, you know, as otherwise we wouldn't even be having this conversation. I imagine, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, so I'm growing my own food at, at my uh, at my <laughs> penthouse rooftop in, in London. In London, but. So they're coming over to me to, you know, the few flowering things I have over there, but it's not enough. And literally I've had these bees between my hands and they're just dying. They're starving to death in the winter and in the spring because what does the well-meaning hipster do? So one thing is he doesn't necessarily consider that the flowers are few and far apart. So being an urban bee is really hard work. You fly and you fly and you fly and you're not getting a lot. And then that honey that you're then able to produce, he harvests that. So what are you going to live off? So literally he's killing off the bees. And why is this? This isn't because the bees are in bad shape or because it's cold in London. Or it's because there are no food sources. Because we have all male species in the, or predominantly male species in, the, in our cities. So you're a balcony where you grow food. Uh, you're, you're a supermarket for like a, a <laughs> yes. few bees next door, and and but yeah. you're not. You don't even have enough. You know, I don't even have enough food to feed them. It's no. kind of like Brexit. There's like no food on the shelves, right? <laughs> yes. Except it's yes. just for the bees, right? I know. Okay, European Brexit jokes never get old. Um, <laughs> now I think the listener will probably understand intuitively why female trees are messy. But like, let's explain it. Like, of course, the fruit falls off and it yeah. squishes on the ground, and ooh, I have to step on that, and somebody yeah. has to clean it up and the municipality has to budget for that. Yeah. I mean, this is what we're talking about yeah, here, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. If you have an urban landscaping aesthetic that is towards freestanding trees on a plain, short-cut grass surface, debris in that sense, and like fruits and whatnot, all of that is a mess. But things are changing, again, as we're talking about. The world is changing. We're introducing just stop cutting the grass. By just not cutting the grass in urban areas, you're gonna increase biodiversity by 25%, right? Just that, just don't cut it. And if you cut it, have some goats come and eat it like every fourth year or whatnot, right? So the whole manicuring of the city is changing into something more wild, something more, I mean, the High Line was one of the first projects that really celebrated more wild grasses and whatnot. Although still in my opinion, too manicured, but that's another story. So the aesthetics are changing. So we don't need to worry about that anymore. You know, if you have tall grasses and wild bushes, you don't need to worry about a few apples falling to the ground, right? But right. what if all the trees in a city were female? Right. Would that work? Or, I mean, obviously, they need, <laughs> teach yeah, me yeah. about the birds and the bees. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we can't yeah, just no, trade, no. we have to have just a, a good balance no, of no, female no. and male, or I mean, can we only have uh, female trees? So if you have male and female trees, they obviously help each other out in making sure the species continues, right? But the thing is, since that's not necessarily what we're going for in an urban area because we like to control our planting, we don't need them to do that. So we don't need the male and the female trees to, be, to have that balance with each other and be in harmony with each other and have that mechanism between each other. So we could go all female. There would be absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. And the analogy is chickens. So chickens are going to produce eggs no matter what. Sometimes those eggs, if there's uh, a rooster, the hens are going to produce eggs that are going to be fertilized, right? They're going to turn into little chickens, baby chickens. If the rooster is not there, they're still going to produce eggs. And we can still eat those. That's still a food source. Just like the apple tree is still going to provide a food source for our pollinators. Now, I think a lot of the listeners who focus on urbanism are aware of this conversation that we need more urban greenery. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, do. Bianca, mm -hmm. why do we need more urban greenery? Oh God, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Paris, no. <laughs> I got all the time in the world, man. Yeah, and it's a good spot. Yeah. Well, okay, so first of all, the single best way to mitigate social inequity in health is equal access to public parks. And then you're like, why is that? Obviously, one component of that is that because of the exercise you get, whether it's walking or playing games or running or whatnot. But another really big component in there is the urban greenery, right? So we really need to acknowledge and appreciate and celebrate how much, how big an impact urban greenery has on our bodies and our minds. So if you live within five minutes of a park, you statistically will live up to five years longer. Five years? Yes. Wow. 
If you live within five minutes walk of a park, you statistically will have less sick leave throughout your life. Now, there's a couple of different reasons for that. Obviously, there are many reasons, there are many factors that impact a person's health. What's interesting, and I think this is what I want to focus on now, is the mechanisms um, that urban greenery has that we don't have, that we don't always talk enough about, such as how being able to see foliage will effectively up your immune system and lower your stress hormones just to be able for our eyes to see foliage. Now that foliage can either be a tree canopy, it can be a big old bush, it can be, you know, but just foliage. So even the plants in my window in my home would well, have the uh, oh yeah. same kind of effect, Absolutely, right? oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The grasses we have, the bushes, the shrubbery, the plants in general we have are great. And they do a lot of really good stuff for us, but the really big impact is from trees, is from urban trees. And there's a couple of different reasons why. If we take the micro scale first, what trees do for us at the micro scale is obviously they mitigate our uh, microclimate, meaning that they can lower the local temperature by two degrees. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but again, remember we're talking about one or two degrees in terms of climate change. So it's a hell of a lot, yeah. right? They're also able to mitigate extreme humidity situations, such as like super dry areas versus super humid areas or whatnot. They can mitigate that. They will provide shade, obviously. They can provide shelter from the rain, all that stuff. And then they also block uh, wind, right? Obviously, we have a misconception when we're talking about blocking wind because blocking wind at street level, they don't do that. They block wind and in general, like in a, a neighborhood level. If you want to block wind at a street level, you need bushes and shrubbery. Things that are the same height as people. Trees are higher. What blocks the wind is actually that the wind hits the leaf of whatever foliage you're, you're, uh, you have. Then the wind, because wind travels via surfaces. So then the wind needs to travel around that leaf. Now that traveling around the leaf will slow the wind down. It takes up some of the, it takes some of the speed, right? So that slows the wind down. And then all the rest of the leaves that it has to travel through Correct. as well. Correct. Uh, so the wind is trapped in the canopy for quite a long time before it moves on. And it's slowed down by the time it gets to the other side of the tree. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So that's on our micro scale, you can see. On a macro scale, it's a whole other story, Michael. And that's where it gets super interesting. So you know how everybody loves to hate on carbon these days? You know, carbon is like... It's the new F word. It's like the C word, right? Um, the F word meaning fuck, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Just checking. Yeah. Danish and podcast. the C word meaning well, maybe we don't carbon. Even carbon. Yeah. There you go. Right. Yes. No. But <laughs> let's just again remember that all life on this planet is carbon-based. Carbon is not the enemy. Carbon is a good thing. I'm made of carbon. You're made of carbon. My coat is made of carbon. My sneakers are made of. Everything is made out of carbon. The problem is when carbon is floating freely around in the atmosphere. That's what we don't want. That's when it gets dangerous. That's when it can end life as we know it. But when it's bound in things, it's brilliant and it's what makes life on this planet. So let's just remember that, right? So what do we want to do with all the carbon instead of just hating randomly on carbon? We want to get it out of the atmosphere where it doesn't belong, get it back bound into organic matter, right? Best tool for doing that trees obviously the smart listener would have seen that coming but <laughs> my listeners are super smart okay so gotcha. they, they they're way ahead now they're way anyway. ahead so they're now we catch ahead. up yeah okay <laughs> yes i'll try to i'll try to catch up okay <laughs> so basically what the trees do is they suck up the carbon of the atmosphere and they store it safely and sustainably in their leaves in their flowers in their stems in their branches in their trunks and in their roots. This is why we're always talking about we should use more timber in construction, right? Because then we are using material that stores carbon rather than, or stores CO2, rather than requiring it or releasing it in the process such as steel, which has seven times the carbon footprint of timber, right? Which is insane. Now, that's all great as long as that tree, that piece of timber stays intact. The minute we change it or burn it, 
we release the carbon. This is also why people should stop having fireplaces, because we are burning, you know, we're taking what, was, what is safely stored and turning that into dangerous carbon in the atmosphere. We need to get it back into organic matter. So what's even more safe than a trunk that you can turn into timber? Let's go to the roots, let's go to the soil. Because what the tree does, when it's done with claiming whatever carbon it wants from what it sucks out of the atmosphere, it takes it down to its roots and it funnels it out into the soil around it, into the mycelium network down there, into whatever living creatures are down there doing their jobs, right? I mean, it's a whole thing. Just like we don't know anything about our oceans, we have no freaking clue what goes on inside the ground. We have no idea, but I can tell you it is it is awesome in the literal sense of that word. It's just an endless, complex, intricate, interconnected, super powerful, just one mechanism after the other, one process following another. It's amazing, right? But anyways, so what happens with the carbon down there? Well, some of it is, you know, moves into these processes that happens down there. You got a lot of like different animals that live down there. You got a lot of bacteria that live down there. Ooh, speaking of bacteria, when we're talking about what's great for um, why we need more trees and more greenery in the urban areas, here's an interesting fact. So there are certain bacteria that live in soil when those bacteria pee, again, I'm going to get a little <laughs> graphic here. Welcome to toilet urbanism. <laughs> toilet cum shot urbanism. Yes. Yeah. When those bacteria pee, when the human brain picks up that scent, that smell, it instantly releases anti-stress hormones. So when you walk past soil, you literally de-stress just from walking past it. Now from the scent of the soil. Correct. Yeah. Because bacteria are going pee pee. Correct. All right, cool. Isn't that amazing? It is. So we don't just need more trees and more plants and more whatnot in cities. We need more soil. We need more soil. Soil is the key to everything. And then imagine you're not just providing soil for like health reasons. You're also providing this giant carbon bank, this vault that stores all that carbon in an even more safe and even more sustainable way than a trunk, which you can take down and you can cut up and you can chop it even further up and you can burn it and you can release that carbon back out. You can't touch that carbon once it's in the soil. That's like there. So the soil is really a key factor in uh, in this tale. Yes. Yeah. And it's amazing and it's marvelous. And so basically, you know, when you think about how can an urban area, and also given the fact that the world is becoming, the planet is becoming urbanized, we need to stop, I mean, of course, vast wooded areas and reforestation is super important, but we can also make a difference in the urban areas. And then a lot of the arguments you hear is around, well, we don't have space enough for street trees. We need the space for the parking, right? That's a classic one. Yeah. You, I mean, you and I have heard that so many times. And it is true because we do have a tendency to want to control the greenery in our urban areas. Now, in some cases we do need to, like let's, you all know, like roots that migrate, that slowly move into sewers and water pipes because they know the water's in there. Like that tree, he knows where the water is and he's like going for that water, right? He doesn't care if it's concrete or steel he has to go through, he can go through it, which is also quite impressive. So for some, in some cases, it's a good thing to control. In other cases, you're just like, why are we doing this? It doesn't even make any sense. So I pointed out to you a couple of times here in Paris, as we've been walking, that there are these containers. Just if you scrape off the top layer of soil around the trees where the plants is, there are these containers. They are created to control the root space. Because if you control the root space, you control the canopy. The bigger the root space, the bigger the canopy. And when you're saying containers, just so we're clear, uh, it's like metal tubes. It's a metal tube. Set down deep into the ground so yeah. that the roots are limited uh, in their growth outwards. Yes. Yeah. This, of course, has the nasty side effect that if a car rams, in, rams into a tree in an urban area, that tree will collapse and fall tip over. If the same car would do it to a similar sized tree out in the open land where this doesn't happen, the tree wouldn't 
fall over. I mean, that's basic physics, right? I mean, the root network is exactly. wider and more balanced, so yep. the tree is less likely to fall over when you hit it with your damn car. Correct. All right. And then that's just from a safety point of view. But then when you think about what's that like for that tree to grow up inside that metal tube? And then, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get so graphic today, it's crazy. Do we need viewer, like... Maybe like a listener discretion listener advice. Listener discretion advice. Because I know where you're going. It's yeah. also blew my mind earlier. Go there. Go to this dark place. We have to it's go to science. the dark place. It's science. I know. It's, it's facts. We need to face the facts. So imagine being the tree growing up inside this. You're planted as a teenager. You're taken from the nursery. You're planted in the, as a teenager in this urban area. And you grow up inside this tube that constrains you, constrains your growth, your natural growth. It's kind of like the babies in pots in China in the 14th and 1500s, where the beggars market was so competitive that they needed, parents needed to give their children an advantage in order to be able to make a living as a beggar. So they would put them in pots and that would deform the babies, the limbs, all the extremities would be deformed by growing up inside a pot. And then that would enable you to actually get money when you're begging. It's the same thing. But it's literally the Chinese babies in pots, like these trees around us. And that's why, you know, people are always like, why does so many of our trees in urban areas die? Well, hello. Yeah. Hello, reason. It's Chinese right pot babies. <laughs> or jar babies. Maybe ceramic jars, I think, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah, ceramic jars, yeah. And when you told me about the Chinese jar babies, I'd never heard that before, and I want to see this movie, but then I don't want to no, see it at all because I'm probably already going to have nightmares tonight because I didn't know about this. Know. We know about how they deformed the feet of women. Yeah. Uh, tiny feet were you know, considered yeah. sexy. The tinier the better. And then deformed babies growing up in... Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, this is a weird podcast episode. Know, I'll, I'll know, give us that. I know. Maybe you can edit it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's weird. Listen, I have a podcast about sperm trees giving us non-consensual cum shots i have chinese deformed chinese pot babies we got peeing bacteria this is this is a gold mine of a podcast episode dude but that's what's amazing about science now we were walking along the sand we were looking for how to get down here to the riverside to find a quiet spot to podcast i don't know how it's well, going to end no, up for yeah. the listener how quiet it is but hey you're with us in paris right yes, now yes. but you uh, you uh, walked past a tree and you said oh stop michael come here smell this can you smell it and i'm going yeah. yeah right i could smell yeah. the tree next to four lanes of traffic but yeah. it wasn't a good thing i was smelling no it was a sick tree a we sick could tree. we could smell the sick tree so there are various diseases and there are various you know ways that a tree can suffer and some of the ways that a tree suffers, you can actually smell it, and that's what I pointed out to you there. There's a lot of trees where we're walking, and it was only that tree that had that distinct smell. And then I just, um, an another graphic example, I guess, since that's what we're doing apparently today. <laughs> oh guess, God, where are we going now? Um, is that sometimes when you, when there are these really strong smells from planting, from planting um, and greening, it's actually not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Like for instance, you know, often when you walk into a flower store where they make flower bouquets. And then you're like, oh, this is, mm, I smell all the flowers. It's, it's wonderful. I'm, you know, it's so fragrant and perfumey. Yeah, that's the smell of death. That's the same kind of smell that you would have in a slaughterhouse. Because when the plants are cut off like that, sending out the really strong smell, it's a desperate try for that plant to get a pollinator to come visit the flower before it dies because it knows it knows it's dying it's like an olfactory cry for help it's right? a cry for help yeah. it's an sos yeah wow okay yeah so that that was what we smelled back there jesus <laughs> i know dark this is <laughs> no. dark shit man but it's important dark shit right it's important because we can't survive without understanding all the lost potential there is missed opportunity after missed opportunity after missed opportunity here when we talk about urban greenery. It's not for decorative purposes, people. I get so upset sometimes when people, it's critical to our survival if we're trying to create habitat, human habitat and ecological habitat and animal habitat. We need it. That's how the planet works, right? You're also telling me about the secret network. The, in, oh, the, in the tree internet. Mycelian network. The mycelian network. Yes. Um, the and there's network. some scientific dude, and I love that there's some scientific dude like <laughs> doing this. 
Man, um, okay, wait. First of all, there yes. are certain things yeah. that my brain cannot handle. Right. <laughs> the universe, yeah. the Big Bang Theory, what was before the... I literally have physical anxiety yeah. when I try to tackle that. Right. So I'm never going to be that guy to, in that field, ever. Right. I literally will go to my grave not even spending a lot of time on it. Other people do, yeah. and that's awesome. I do what I do, you do what you do, we do that in cities, but man, it, it blows my mind, right? And right. then there's some guys in Finland trying to make uh, you know, meat. They make meat out of carbon. They make meat out of carbon with electricity and I, I and don't even- And water and I was, enzymes. You told me about that last time. I was gonna Google it. I'm going, no, I, don't, I literally don't wanna Google that because <laughs> I will not understand it. And I would rather use my energy understanding other things. Great. Right. Um, I fully admit my, my, my flaws here. <laughs> yeah. But the mycelium network, man, yes. this is hurting my head today. Come on. I know. The Internet of Trees. Tell me about Internet it. Internet of Trees. And the dude, what's he doing? Sorry, I helped oh, away. Yeah, yeah. He, he, what's this guy trying to send messages right. to, into the mycelium network? Yes. This is another film that needs to be made. I know. So many films needs to be made. Okay, yeah. So this is super cool. Uh, the fun guy guy, they called him. The uh, fun guy. Well, why not just the fun guy? Come I on. know. They called him the fun guy guy. So I, I met him when I was teaching in Seattle. And so um, he basically, you know, he started his career in academia as that weird guy in the basement who had fungi, right? And he was investigating fungi and the, obviously the mycelium network is, is a network of, of fungi. So there's a lot of different types of species of net, uh, fungi. These specific fungi create a symbiosis with the root system. So there are they're a parasite, but they're a healthy one, right? Just like our gut bacteria used to be a disease, but then we sort of went into symbiosis with it, and now we need it in order to have a healthy digestion. Same thing with the mycelium network. So it's a fungi network, a vast, vast fungi network. And these networks can get super big. I would probably estimate, and I could be wrong, but I would estimate that if we didn't plant trees in small pots and create Chinese pot babies out of it. You could probably have one or two networks covering the entire Paris underneath the ground. And that meant that all the trees would be connected through the tree internet. And what do they do? Well, how do they communicate? I mean, do they send dick pics like we like humans do? <laughs> Hopefully they are more productive in their use of their network, their internet. I mean, what kind of messages do you think they send to each other? So we're just starting to understand what they say to each other. We know that they communicate about danger. We know if there's an imminent danger, they communicate about it. We also know like that fire there's- fire or something? Yes, but the problem is again, <laughs> if you're a tree and there's a fire, you can be scream fire all you want, but you're stuck in a place, you can't move. So you literally just stand there like, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you it, But you can send a message yeah. to other trees going, dude, I'm totally burning and I'm gone in five minutes. Wait. But you're war Okay, warnings like that. Warnings right. like that. Wait for that one. Oh, the city of sirens. I know. Paris. Sirens, sirens. Um, yeah, so warning signs, any kind of danger, imminent danger. They also warn each other about diseases. And sometimes the trees can actually respond to those diseases before they reach the other trees, if they get the message fast. And this is what the fungi guy in uh, Seattle is currently doing. Obviously he's working for, um, you know, with agriculture because wouldn't it be amazing if you could send messages to crops so you wouldn't have to lose an entire crop but just parts of it or whatnot. So he's just trying to hack himself into like a, the dark tree web Correct. and send messages like in the scene if anybody answers. Correct, yeah. Hey, what's up? You guys are good? And, and he, then, you know, yeah, hopefully and, getting a reply or I, I might, my God, that's so cool. And he's now up to one hectare. He can send a message through the mycelium network that can be detected in plants and trees one hectare away. Can you imagine? That, that's what I'm like, saying. The thing is I can't imagine. No, I love it that I cannot imagine this, but I'm absolutely fascinated by it. And that's why I keep saying soil, man. Yeah. Like that's the next frontier. It is soil. We need to understand. Be better at understanding what goes down there. It's amazing. We also know that mother trees will send messages to their uh, children if they're in an area where they're not controlling their growth. So like you can say like a suburban area where they can grow more freely or even a forest, even better, right? Then the mother trees will send messages to her baby trees about things to watch out for, about how to live their life, how, how to... Oh, that tire. was just a bike puncture. Yeah, it was a bike puncture. In front of you and me, he punked. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, yeah. there's a lot of urban poetry that it was in front of you and me. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> I know. Poor guy. He's like Poor screwed guy. now, but uh, oh. all right.
Yeah. Cool. He's going to have to become a pedestrian. Instant pedestrianization. Yeah, Insta pedestrian. <laughs> da, 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 da. Insta pedestrian. All right. Geez, we're really, we were really I know, I know. off track here. But go. Uh, Just for the listeners, uh, we are not drunk. Yeah, we're, no. We're high in life. Actually, that is a really good disclaimer. It is the middle of the day on a Friday, so things might happen later in Paris. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, it's Paris. No. But yeah, this is right just now. Bianca and me every time we hang out. It's just the, yeah, Michael and Bianca show. Exactly. Um, so, so the mother. The, the mother trees yeah. will help, help their offspring through the mycelial network, but she will also communicate with other mothers through the mycelial network. So really, it's not just like a random internet where strangers meet, it's also a way of creating relationships with each other. And there are some of the crazy tree huggers out there who talk about loneliness in urban areas because the trees can't communicate with each other because they're cut off from each other. So they're in fact, you know, and I, we still need more research on this. I can't like sit here and preach loneliness uh, with urban trees or like the pots in your, in your uh, apartment, right? You should put them in one big pot so they can communicate with each other. But, there is definitely, it's well-known fact that a little healthy competition between trees makes a forest grow faster. Wow. We know this. They're oh. individuals. They're connected. They have feelings for each other. They have relationships. They have bonds with each other. So maybe not the internet of trees, but more like the Facebook of trees. You know, yeah, like they all have like groups, uh, <laughs> group chats. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Are you eating enough? You know, <laughs> the mother to the kids. You all look right? a little scrawny. Put a sweater on. Oh, yeah, you're going to catch a cold. All right. Oh my God, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Now, in order to reestablish some structure in this <laughs> amazing, fascinating podcast, again, yeah. we're identifying the problems, yeah. highlighting the possibilities. Yes. But if we talk about urban green canopy, yes. there are some cities that are light years ahead. I can identify Toronto as one. Hamburg. Uh, Hamburg. Toronto has a visionary tree policy. They yeah. also have a lot of female trees. Yes. There's an entire NGO called Not Far From The Tree. 3,000 volunteers, they'll go into your backyard, pick the plums or the grapes or the, the apples that you don't have time to pick because you're working or whatever. Yeah. Give you a third of the harvest, a third goes to the NGO, a third goes to a homeless shelter. Oh man, amazing. And 3,000 volunteers because there's such an amazing green canopy in Toronto and their policy is great. I live in Fredericksburg in Copenhagen, official tree policy. I have to be able to see a tree from my apartment, and yeah. everybody does. Yeah. You know, I think that that's cool. Copenhagen, if you've heard a previous episode, I'll link to it down in the description, but, you know, Copenhagen sucks at yeah, trees. So, what other cities in the world are the leaders that you look to and say they're really doing a good job in their understanding of the complexity of urban greenery, the way they protect it, the way they nurture it? Singapore. Singapore, bang. Singapore oh, okay, is light years ahead of us, like ahead of the rest of the world. Now I know, obviously, with the geographic location, it's an ideal climate for growing something that's even close in some areas to jungle, like urban jungle. I want to call it the urban jungle. But at the same time, they're acknowledging they have a great potential and they're just going for it full thrust. It is green, green, green. Every single new project is super green. Every single new building have to have greenery, like vast, large-scale soil, proper soil volumes, green space, either in terms of terraces or green walls. Like they're just going full on, man. And it's amazing. It's incredible. Like I urge everyone, you gotta go past like Singapore and check out all the new uh, projects, all the new neighborhoods, all the new public parks. They are incredible. The lushness you get in Singapore. And just the fact that you're, you know, you're sitting in a public park and you, if there's quiet, for instance, if you go at night and it's quiet, you heal life around you. It's like being in the jungle. It's like crickets. It's like, you know, the ooh, ooh, the little monkeys that make that sound. I can't remember what the name is, but you have that cute face, right? Yeah. You got all sorts of birds. You got, you know, and, and bugs are crawling all over you. Maybe you don't want that, but it's a, it's a sign of life. That city is becoming a living organism on its own, in its own right. Where I am there, we have human habitat, but we also have another form of habitat that's almost independent from us humans, but we're coexisting. It's a dream, man. It's a dream. It's a dictature, obviously, but it's a dream. 
I remember many years ago, Copenhagen put beehives on top of all municipal buildings and released three million bees into the city. For a city that doesn't really understand the importance of trees, now I'm wondering that a policy came later that all new, new structures have to have a green roof yeah. uh, in order to create the necessary food greener sources. food sources for the bees. I don't know if that was like there's a disconnect. How many of those three million bees died? They produced a lot of honey and were giving it out and you can yeah. buy it and stuff. But yeah. um, so, but anyway, that policy. To Copenhagen's credit, that all new structures have to have a green roof. Yep. That's not yep. bad, a bit visionary. Bizarrely, they have no tree policy, but they did that. You also have the new sidewalks in Ørsted. So, as your listeners may know, neither you or me are particular fans of Ørsted, right? No. It's, it's, it's the new development south of Copenhagen. Well, not that new, but it's a massive flop and fail and stupid and should die. Thank you. Yes. Sums it up. Everything we understand as the not-to-dos in urbanism has happened out there. So, but what they have is they have some brand new sidewalks they just put in with a new neighborhood that's sort of sprouting out there. Uh, and those sidewalks are, you got your car lane, you got your bike lane, you got your sidewalk. In between your sidewalk and your bike lane, you got about a good two and a half to three meters of just wild shrubbery. A bioswale is what we would call it. A bioswale, but this one is, of course, it has a purpose in terms of like overflow water and whatnot. But more so than that, you have all these amazing weeds growing there. So it's not a bias whale in the Northern American sense of the word, where it's kind of still manicured because mm -hmm. you choose pretty flowers and interesting flowers and, you know, plants that can clean the, clean the off-run water and whatnot. This is just weeds and they're just growing wild. And you got butterflies all over the place. And it's so arbitrary and bizarre to have this new neighborhood with like these beautiful wild sidewalks where you know you're walking there and there are like ants you know on the pavement and you're like that's amazing. I don't see ants anymore in my backyard. I never saw a lot in my neighborhood in Copenhagen. I've noticed yeah. The deterioration of the insect population and yeah. the fewer and ants spiders. And, and fewer spiders. In there the are. I can. Too. I love spiders. If yeah. I see a spider in my home, I say, "What's up, dude?" Like, yeah. I, you know, he catches the moths and all the other yeah, stuff, yeah. The, the fruit flies. So I literally love spiders. Yeah, they have deteriorated over the past few years. They're yeah. very few in the summer now. Yeah. And again, you know, as we all know, without insects, we human race would last about approximately. Like, let's imagine, the apocalypse hits and all insects are dead. Like every single one, we would last approximately six months, the human race. See, that's another movie, although yes. <laughs> a very short movie maybe, but yeah. yeah. It takes Ant-Man to the Where next level. Where is Hollywood here, man? I know. Climate I change know. awareness and creating some wild uh, films. And then we're back to the same thing again. You can't, the old dictonomy, nature versus urban, forget it. Forget it. Can we just finally put an end to that whole cul-de-sac of a conversation and just recognize we are one ecosystem and we need to be better at celebrating and appreciating that ecosystem. I'm sitting here thinking about other cities that I know through my ex experience uh, filming the Life Size City and, and my work in urbanism. Yeah. I, I just recall Toronto again, the University of Toronto, typical North American campus, incredibly manicured, has to look really nice for you know, a very long time. And I think some students said, why don't we just grow stuff that we can eat here? Yeah. To their credit, the University of Toronto said, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. So they grow potatoes that are used in the canteen or whatnot, and it's rewilded female yeah. species species all over the place. Yeah. Uh, that's another cool one. I know there's food forests in Seattle, lots of other places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we're researching the life-size city and we're going to another city and trying to figure out what to film, there's nothing but green, cool stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. That's my optimist saying, yeah. There was a lot of awareness. Yeah. We need more trees. We need more shade. We need more biodiversity. Yeah. So in a way, you know, you try to get more bikes into cities, and we're still battling that, as I've been doing for 15 years. But yeah. the greening thing, it seems to be much more intuitive yeah. in cities. So I don't know what cities, apart from Singapore, uh, you get all excited about when you hear about what they're doing. No, I mean, I think, honestly, as you're saying, a lot of cities are doing a lot of good stuff. But it's very small and local projects. So like having something like, like the city of Toronto with a citywide policy, that's amazing. I'm still waiting for that. I'm still waiting to see that more and more. But you have a lot of, you can say, sort of halfway policies already. Like for instance, Hamburg that I mentioned before, it actually has the largest 
uh, canopy coverage in Europe. And you don't think of uh, Hamburg as a green city. No. It's not like when I think of uh, Hamburg, I'm like, oh, yes, the green capital of uh, Europe. No, that's not, you know, you think of, I don't know, Bratwurst or something. You know what I mean? Like you think of other things. Yeah. But in fact, what uh, part of when they did the policy for Hamburg was the part of the thinking was that if we can just create enough canopy coverage in our city, we can provide enough habitat so that we can sustain a decent animal population. So they had this idea that the canopies would become a sort of second infrastructure. So you had your street infrastructure as the human habitat, and then you would have the canopy infrastructure as the animal habitat. And that targets mainly insects and birds, but still, that's a really big part of, uh, of animal life, right, in cities. So rather than having one super street somewhere in the city and then nothing else, I would rather have a sort of halfway there option for the entire city. Because it's really about, just like it is for us, it's always about infrastructure, isn't it? 60% of all the time we spend outdoor in a city is streets. It happens in the street. Same thing for the animals. Same thing with everything, you know? So really getting those large-scale networks in place, that is huge. And then soil. You know me and soil. More soil. Sounds kind of simple. Yeah, it's right? not. If, I know. No, I no, know. but it does sound simple. Plant more trees, plant them well. Yes. Understand the importance of how to plant them and what they need. Yeah. Soil. Yeah. Another city that comes to mind is New Orleans. I filmed there. And there is an NGO who jackhammer the asphalt. Yeah. Put in permeable surfaces, plant native species of plants that suck up water. Yeah. Instead of trying to put this layer over New Orleans, it sucks itself into the yeah. earth, as it's kind of done for billions of years. Exactly. It sounds kind of simple when you say it. Yes. Even though we're saying lots of weird stuff today, <laughs> it, it's just plant more trees, plant the, you know, Jesus, know. sirens, man. <laughs> and that guy's just going for lunch, you know? You just, you, <laughs> there cannot possibly be that many emergencies in a city of two million people no, like Paris there is. Can't. No, there can't. To warrant that many sirens. I know. You really got to question it. When you talk to Parisians, they're going, yeah, ha-ha, he's just going home for dinner. Yeah. Well, ha he's just going home for lunch, whatever. But yeah, you make it sound simple. Plant more trees, plant them well, understand the importance of what they need when they're planted. Uh, why isn't it that easy for cities? Plant more female trees. My God, we can't yeah. forget that one. Oh, yeah. you know, it makes it sound rather simple. Yeah, we have some ghosts from the past. Are they and old white men? <laughs> no, not those this time. You're okay. off the hook. Yeah, you're off the hook. Wasn't no, we me. <laughs> People I happen to look like, come on. We have some ghosts from the past, and a lot of those ghosts are aesthetics, historic aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of perception of what a nice area looks like. Like how grass should be cut. It should not. It is ridiculous. Grass also produces more pollen the more you cut it. That's another thing. Yeah. And again... It's not another thing. It's actually an important thing. Yeah. yeah. Look how many lawns there are around the world. And it, Yeah. And again, if we're talking about, I mean, 30% of the world's population, that's like the entire gen set uh, generation. It's 2.4 billion people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Like, I'm just saying, you know? Anyways, grass is meant to be big and tall, right? So let grass be grass. Don't cut it, for one thing. But the aesthetics around a nicely cut grass, grass lawn, are they're so prevalent, they're so persistent in our culture. Take, for instance, Castello in Copenhagen, right? The old castle at the head of the harbor, yes, right? Yes, yes. You know, there was a proposal done by an, an NGO saying, why, why can't we stop cutting the grass and, you know, rewild it? plant shrubbery and bushes. And the uh, Stelz Gartner, the head gardener in uh, Copenhagen city, he said, no, we cannot because we have a sort of moral imperative to keep it historically correct. And then my question is, what is historically correct, dude? Is there a certain time? Like, can you put yeah, a history, pin down? History is like longer than 400 years, <laughs> exactly. right? I it's mean, like, come on. What is historically correct? Yeah. Historically correct is anything from yesterday and backwards, right? Like, what is that? So, so there are these aesthetics that are so deeply rooted in our culture. It's really difficult to get rid of. And it's going to take a while. It's a process. Now that is fascinating. This is a really good point. Oh, you know, historically correct. We want to maintain our historical heritage. Exactly. Cobblestone streets in the heart of Copenhagen. Yes. 
horrible to ride on. The Champs Elysees here, yeah. cobblestones on their bike lanes. Yep. There's a, some French organization who takes care of the aesthetics and the historical integrity of the city. They're saying you can't have asphalt there. It's the Champs Elysees, man. Exactly. We need the cobblestones like we always used to have. It's a pain to ride a bike on. Apparently, these people know where history starts. Exactly. That's really interesting. <laughs> oh, it's on that date in that year, and it's only 400 years ago. Great. Yeah. History no. is maybe a bit older than that. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And also. You know, okay, it's just because something is historically correct, but then what is the best time to put that needle <laughs> in, you know, and be like, this is what we want it to look like. Maybe we need to reassess some of these things. Is Does history truly outweigh the quality of life of the people there? Or does it truly outweigh the ability to be climate resilient? I mean, we are facing a climate collapse. But, you know, I'm just going to be like completely, you know, frank here. We are facing a climate collapse. There's nothing we can do about it. It's coming. We don't know when, we don't know how bad. All we can do at this point is mitigate. We can't fix it. That option is gone. We cannot fix it. We can mitigate. So we have a lot of small, tiny, like millimeter options of mitigation all over the world, in all of our cities, and all of our forests, and all of our wetlands, and all of our mountains. And we're not ceasing those because, no, oh, it won't really have an impact. Of course it will. It's kind of like we talked about last time. If you add all the minorities together, they become the majority. So anything, oh, no matter how small, will matter. Everything counts in large amounts. Thank you very much, Depeche Mode. But that's really how it is, yeah. right? So if we can just stop cutting that grass, that will also help us. Everything helps. Yeah, every little thing, huh? Yeah. Now I'm wondering if we should get some t-shirts printed with stop hating on carbon <laughs> and walk around our respective cities and see what kind of response we get from that. And then we can maybe explain that, hey, we're all carbon. Carbon yes. is a good thing, blah, 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 right? Yeah. But still, I mean, if I walk, you know, a gray-haired guy my age walking around with a t-shirt saying stop hating, hating on, carbon. on carbon people are gonna think you're a car driver oh they're gonna yeah they're gonna think i'm a total like you know anti everything yes. guy right like oh my god but it's not again that's what's amazing about science you yeah know? but it's a great slogan yeah. stop hating on carbon and now i'll explain why right? i'll wear that yeah. t-shirt i would wear that t-shirt okay and with the sound of a skateboard and a flip it's Friday night yeah. in Paris, sun is shining. Yeah, let's go get it a glass of wine. always kind of depressing to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you are welcome I, anytime. I'm right here to bring you down, man. <laughs> I never cease learning stuff from you as ever, and it is an amazing uh, topic to discuss yeah. because it is so important. And like I think I said, it's not that hard, you know, exactly. planting more trees, doing it well. Um, and going for the low-hanging fruit, exactly. which you can't do because it's all male sperm I know. trees. Yeah, where's but... my low-hanging fruit? <laughs> where's oh. my low-hanging fruit? Dude, awesome to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. Let's do Friday night in Paris. Cool. High five. You've been listening to the life-sized city, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.